Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The just-completed elections in Spain were notable for the presence of a far-right party for the first time since Spain returned to democracy. The Vox Party captured 10% of the vote, which would give it 24 seats. Vox takes a hard line against Catalan secessionists. It vows to protect the country from feminists, liberal elites, and Muslims, among others. There's an interesting article in Foreign Policy about the origins of the Spain's new far-right party, and the article's entitled, Spain's Vox Party Hates Muslims Except the Ones Who Fund It. One of the co-authors is with me. Sohail Janasari is here. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, what happened here? The outcome with 10% of the vote for the Vox Party, is that good for them? Is that um, bad for them? How, how, is, how are people judging that right now? Uh, so Vox has uh, participated in elections before. And I think the last time, in 2016, they got less than 20 percentile of 1%, so nothing. And based on that, sure, they got a very good result. The party supporters and the leaders clearly expected better than this. They expected something between 13 and 14%. And with 10%, it's not working for them. So you would see a lot of comments by their fans on social media today that they were complaining about the results or talking about how they should leave Spain now that the result is so bad, things like that. The leader is clearly um, trying to say that, yeah, we won, we gained, but it's still not very clear. The thing is, in four weeks, there will be another election in Spain coming up, municipal elections, regional elections, and European parliament elections. And in that one, they might do better. Has the Vox Party really stoked up right-wing thinking in Spain, or have they just captured um, some of the traditional support from the traditional conservative party in Spain, which seems to have taken a real beating in the in the election? Mm, it's a bit of both. So uh, for almost 30 years, from late 80s, uh, the traditional conservative party in Spain, the People's Party, that was a ruling party until a year ago. They had they captured all of the votes on the right of the center, uh, uh, among the right of the center voters, from liberal liberals in European sense, not in American sense, center right to extreme right. And then they lost their hold on those kind of voters. Um, there are two parties, two new right-wing parties, one to their left, one to their right now. Um, so it's part of them. Their more hardline voters went to this new party. Also, uh, in the last year or in the last few months, basically, that Vox popped up in the news and started gaining attention. Um, the other two right-wing parties have started adopting their language and their, in a way, their discourse. So um, the Conservative Party was anti-feminist before, but not this much. Currently. They are copying the talking points from Vox in order to get back the voters that they've lost to it. And in this way, Vox is now becoming uh, the main discourse on the right in Spain. What is an anti-feminist party? Because, I mean, the way, I mean we got a lot of right-wing thinking here, but nobody comes out and says, we're anti-feminist. Um, so you guys in the United States have other names for it, but... For example, anti-feminism is let's get the abortion right back from women. Or let's um, call gender violence or 
basically men killing women, let's call it family violence instead of actually, yeah, this is a machismo, this is a patriarchal society doing something. No, 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 no. This is not good. Let's call it just something about in the family, domestic violence, change the words to uh, whitewash the violence or other things like that. All right. Uh, now, it's interesting, this Vox Party, you wrote about the origins of the Vox Party in uh, your article in Foreign Affairs. And it's kind of a mind-blowing scenario to, to peel it back and think it through. Um, but some of their original seed funding, explain where it came from. Okay, so Vox was founded in 2013 by a, uh, let's say... marginal figure in the Conservative Party in Spain called Alejo Vidal Cuadras. He was an MEP, a member of European Parliament, and he was disaffected. He left the party and started funding, founding this new party called Vox. He got almost a million euro, or he received, his party received uh, a million euro from what they call supporters of MEK, Mujahideen Akhal, or People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, which until 2012 was a FTO, foreign terrorist organization, uh, recognized by United States government. Right. And now people in the U.S. might know the MEK from some of its supporters recently have been John Bolton has been very active at their um, events. And so has Rudy Giuliani. They, they've been always they always go to their conferences, always give a speech, always get a check. And, mm-hmm. um, and so Howard Dean and Bob Menendez and others on both sides of the aisle. Right. And so. Now, this organization, um, <laughs> explain it, 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 you know, I mean, it wants to um, support regime change in Iran. That's one of its, one of its fun, fundamental ideas. That's what this, part, this organization has been saying for the last 40 years or maybe even more. So this organization was formed in 1965 during the monarchic days of Iran as, a, as an amalgam of – Islamism and left-wing ideas and mixed it up with armed struggle against the basically uh, king, its forces, and its American supporters in Iran. Um, they were disaffected by the by lack of progress in opposition uh, to the Shah, to the monarchy. After the revolution, um, they thought they will have the power but they, they didn't manage to convince the new rulers, Ayatollah Khomeini and others, to endorse them. And they started having kind of conflict with them. Conflict is a very euphemism for that. They started fighting with them in the streets. There were fights between um, members of Mujahideen, members of MEK, with members of the police, members of forces of the new government, security forces of the new government, and it led to them basically labeled as terrorists or enemies of the state. Um, so they left Iran. The leaders went to Paris. Some of the members went to Iraq, took refugees there with Saddam. And that's when Saddam was waging a war against Iran, the eight-year Iran-Iraq war. And later they allied with Saddam Hussein in, its war, in his war against Iran. All right, and that's where a lot of uh, conservative figures on this uh, in this country found common cause with the MEK. They were both uh, 
you know, against um, against Iran. Yeah, this is basically MEK has always found allies among those who are against Iran, whatever the side they are on. They allied even with Saddam Hussein against Iran. That was during a war that Iraq, the neighboring country, is waging against your country. You go and ally with him because the only thing that matters is the cause of regime change, basically. I'm talking with Sohail Janasari, and we're discussing his article in Foreign Affairs, Spain's Vox Party Hates Muslims Except the Ones Who Fund It, the ones who fund it being the MEK, the uh, Iranian dissident group. Now, we we, we have to ask the fundamental question here. Why does an Iranian uh, dissident group want to fund a a far-right party in Spain? Uh, What what sense does that make? Just a small correction for foreign policy, not for foreign affairs. Foreign affairs, I'm sorry. Foreign policy, yeah. Foreign policy, yeah. Right. Uh, so one reason that has been given is that the founder of this new far-right party, al Al Cuadras, has been a supporter of MEK since 1999. Uh, as Basically, as soon as he became an MEP member of European Parliament, uh, MEK reached out to him. This is during Saddam years. This is when MEK was still an FTO, was just designated an FTO by Clinton administration. They reached out to him and a bunch of other uh, European politicians and American politicians and started working with them. And he started supporting them. He has been appearing in all of their meetings, their annual meetings in Paris and other countries uh, and defending them beside John Bolton and others, of course. And he says, they, apparently he says, oh, we didn't manage to interview him. He didn't get back to us. Um, he says that they did this as a favor to me because I have always been nice to them. We talked with uh, one of the VPs of the party, the current VPs of the party, who today became an MP in Spanish parliament. And he said it was just a personal favor to Bilal Cuadras. It had nothing to do with the rest of us. It's not really believable. It's not easy to believe this thing. Because a million euros for for an organization who has lost its main source of fun- funding, which was basically Saddam's government in Iraq, sending a million euros to a fringe party in Spain, which doesn't, with, without a culture of for far-right parties, with lack of far-right parties for a few decades, it really doesn't make that much sense to us. MEK, of course, says it was not us. It was our supporters from other countries. We asked them and they donated. It was a fundraising campaign, basically. But still, it's hard to believe that someone, a dentist in New York or, I don't know, a lawyer in Paris would send 40,000 euros to this new party in Spain who no one knows. All right. So who who do you think uh, actually sent the money? Uh, we talked to a few defectors from the organization to work with them, those who used to uh, deal with their finances and other things. Um, And one of them told us that it's not MEK's money or the fans. And it's probably, probably, we don't have evidence, of course, it's alleged. All of these things are allegedly, added allegedly to all of my sentences. Uh, They are moving money for someone else. And those who are paying this money, this money, are the ones who support Vox and MEK at the same time. It's not that MEK is supporting a new thing. Um, we, um, Daniel Benjamin, we quote him in our piece. He used to be a counterterrorism official at the U.S. state during first Obama presidency term. And he says the same thing. He says, 
back in 2016 about something totally different. He says that MEK has a lot of money and they always say it comes from our supporters. But it doesn't make sense. It's not. It's too much. It's a um, huge amount of money. It cannot be from the supporters. And then he says, well, because we took them out of the uh, foreign ter- terrorist organization list, it's not easy for U.S. Treasury Department to follow the money and to find who is actually funding them. We have some uh, hunches, some guesses based on which countries they are close to, which countries have they have collaborated in the past, but we still haven't found anything uh, any actual evidence to accuse them directly. And But the hunch would be Saudi Arabia? They have received funding from Saudi Arabia before uh, Saddam's fall and after fall of Saddam. Uh, Prince Turki Faisal, who used to be Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the U.S., Saudi's head of intelligence, he has appeared uh, in their meetings recently, in starting in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And... In the last few years, uh, Saudi has been funding all kinds of campaigns against Iran. Um, for example, funding a new uh, TV, a few new TV stations, or supporting some opposition groups, some dissidents, including MEK. It could be one of the sources of this money, but again, uh, we still haven't found the smoking gun. Now, uh, it's interesting that the Vox Party in Spain took a meeting with Steve Bannon um, in Washington. What, 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 yeah, there's, there seems to be a confluence of connections here. Um, we asked uh, their VP, he's Espino, uh, Ivan Espinoza is their VP for international relations, and he said, no, we haven't met, Vox hasn't met uh, Steve Bannon we have a, we have, um, they have a, an official, a high-ranking member called Rafael Barrahi, and he has met Bannon here and there, and they are friends, and it's in a personal capacity, not in an official capacity. All right. Which, yeah, he has appeared in CPAC, for example, Rafael Barrahi, and I think uh, some other members of Vox this year attended CPAC, but again... They are saying that it's personal, personal, not official or formal relations between them and Bannon. Uh, now, Mr. Bannon's been working on coordinating some of the right-wing groups in Europe together, and they're they're going yeah. to can can work together in the European Parliament. And Vox is is something that wants to do that, right? I'm I'm not barking up the wrong tree there. Okay, again, we asked Vox directly about this, and they said we still don't know. They said we uh, like some of the ideas on the parties that we are referring to, uh, you and I are referring to as far right in Europe. He didn't. Uh, Some of them, we might be able to work with them, but he even raised the possibility of Vox going alone and independent in European Parliament. We really, that's doubtful. In the end, probably they will ally with the likes of uh, Matteo Salvini in Italy, which is the far right the League Party or Front National, uh, National Front in France. But it's just four weeks before elections. They are not going to go on record and say these things. Do you get the feeling like Spain's story with the far right has just begun? Or is this um, is this kind of an aberrant chapter? Uh, no, Spain's story with far right has never ended. It's been an ongoing story since the thir- since 1930s. Um, so Spain had a civil war, had a coup d'etat, then a civil war led by fascists and had a government, 40-year government by them. And 
it's really never dealt with its uh, far right past, unlike Germany or Italy that have done that, that have had a, let's say, confrontation with their past. Spain never did that. Spain had a law, had an agreement called in English Pact of Forgetting or something like that. Just let's forget everything that has happened and let's build a new country. It, of course, it didn't work. They are still dealing with that past. They are still um, finding common, uh, mass graves in Spain from the Civil War era, eight years after that. So the far right story has never been gone, but now is getting uh, is coming more into the light. Sohail Janissary is one of the co-authors of this new article in Foreign Policy called Spain's Vox Party Hates Muslims Except the Ones Who Fund It, and the Vox Party captured 10% of the vote in Spain's elections over the weekend. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to have our regular Food Monday segment with Monica Ng, and we'll talk with Jolene Rivera, and she's co-found, she's founder and director of Kitchen Toke, the first internationally distributed food magazine teaching people how to cook with cannabis. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, public radio stations around Illinois are engaging in a conversation about the state of pot. Our station will bring you stories about cannabis legalization all week long. Today on our Food Monday segment, an intro to cannabis-infused cooking with WBEZ's Monica Ng here with our regular Food Monday segment. Good morning, Monica. How hey, are you? Cheryl. And also with us is Jolene Riviera. Rivera, I'm Rivera. sorry. Uh, the founder and director of Kitchen Toke, the first internationally distributed food magazine teaching people how to cook with cannabis for health and wellness. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hello. This is a very handsome magazine, and you have a very handsome website to go with it. It is just a great-looking thing, uh, first of all, before we get into the material. But um, tell us the origin story of this, because this looks like a really professionally snazzy produced thing. Well, thank you. Um, I have 20 years of experience producing um, food publications as a graphic designer and creative director. Oh, no wonder it looks like <laughs> So um, we, we had been producing some really pretty um, independent uh, magazines and then also a magazine called Food Fanatics for U.S. Foods. And um, I had been talking to chefs about what they're doing in their own, their private time. And a few of them had mentioned uh, cooking with cannabis. But um, these were all little seeds planted for me, you know, leading up to Kitchen Toke. A friend of mine um, who is now my art director, her dad was diagnosed with cancer and I ferried some chocolates to Missouri um, so that he could try them to to help him recover from some uh, treatments he was going through. He was in a lot of pain and had nausea and um, couldn't get comfortable sleeping. So um, he took them and it worked uh, really well. And it was really nice to see that firsthand when when the cannabis kicks in and his mood lightened and his pain subsided a little bit and he started playing with his grandkids. Um, we lost him a month after I ferried those chocolates to him. So it was very impactful to see 
Um, and then, you know, fast forward, you, you start to think about cannabis and food and eating and what can it do? If it can do that for him, what can it do for, for us every day? So. And uh, I've certainly seen it happen with people I know, too, who've uh, used it medically and gotten great results. I think we all have a story, don't we, where I think um, cannabis would be helpful um, for someone, you know, anyone with some kind of injury um, that that is caused by inflammation. So how much of Kitchen Toke is aimed at that universe, the health universe, and how much of it is the... Fun, recreation, Get high universe. Or yeah. get high, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's fair to say that we all deserve a little downtime um, or for the reasons that you would have a glass of wine at night um, or a drink or something to relax. Um, I prefer prefer not to drink. So um, for me, this uh, kitchen toke was born out of a health and wellness um, um, first, and then a recreation second. Um, so if, if you think about all of the things that you would, um, reasons why you would shop for organic food, um, these are all the reasons why you would take your health one, one extra step and, and start adding cannabis to your diet. You know, that, that really struck me as we were sitting in the green room talking because I, you know, I thought, okay, there's the therapeutic. I have some health issues. I want to see if this can help them. And there's the let's all have fun. But then you mentioned the preventive aspect. You you say that some people use it as a, as a wellness preventive uh, sort of thing to, to fight inflammation. I'm a firm believer that the best um, medicine is preventive health care, right? I, um, I was watching the documentary the other day um, again for the second, maybe third time um, called The Magic Pill by um, and it was produced by Peter, Chef Peter Evans out of Australia talking about the ketogenic diet. And it's a diet that I, I have been doing myself for five years. Um, Low carb, no sugar. No carb, no sugar. Um, um, Very whole food oriented fruits, vegetables, um, fish, um, healthy fats. And I do that because I have disc issues in my neck and uh, a, a slap tear in my shoulder. And any inflammation to me, I can feel it. And when you think about the causes of of inflammation or you know the the side effects that can happen when you're chronically inflamed um it's detrimental to our health that most of our diseases start from chronic inflammation. So if you can beat it off at the you know if you can head it off at the pass I mean that's 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 a lot for us. So do you notice on the website you get analytics on all the, the what people use on the website are they really in it for the health like you or are they in it for the are, are there get high ones that are doing really well out there and where where are people uh sourcing this I'm, I'm curious about you know the legal not legal terrain and i mean all of canada is legal all of a sudden they, i would imagine well there's a huge you know um cannabis culture or cannabis community that's all behind the plant right but there's there are so many more people I think that are canna curious, and now with CBD um, happening, it's. I think it's the next biggest health craze. Um, so, explain a little what it is for people. Yeah, who CBD don't know. versus THC. What's that? Because we're seeing CBD everywhere: coffee, beer, hamburgers. Right. Yeah. So there are over a hundred compounds extracted from the cannabis plant. Um, in 1963, I think it was an Israeli um, chemist chemist, um, Dr. Ralph, Ralph Mitchellum, who discovered the extract of CBD and THC from the cannabis plant. Um, those two compounds are the most widely known. Um, CBD is cannabidi- cannab- uh, cannabidiol, and cannabidiol is um, 
um, available through the hemp plant, which is the hemp bill just got passed. So it's federally um, legal and federally um, accessible, or I mean, I'm sorry, internationally accessible by anyone. You can order it online. So if you can order a really good CBD, um, which I when I say good, I say a full spectrum, meaning it has um, all of the plant compounds in it um, or all the uh, particles from the plant. So it's not an isolate. Um, and you can add that to your food. That is what I'm talking about. When I'm saying cooking with cannabis, you can, if you can't have access or you don't have access to the plant, you can start with CBD oil. And what are the generally the effects that people are looking for from that CBD? Um, well, I would think uh, inflammation, for starters. I mean, to me, it's... Um, that, that is the number one, in my mind, inflammation. Also anti-anxiety, antidepressant. Um, there are uh, compounds that have been known to, um, help, uh, CBD uh, has been known to help with seizures. Um, it's anti-nausea. Um, too. Um, and but does it depend on the person? Like, it's not doing all those things at once if I go get right. a CBD coffee down at the corner in Chicago here. Right. Let's be clear that CBD is not the cure-all for everything. You know, if you have a broken bone, it's not going to help you. But um, um, I think that if you are are shopping for the right CBD and you you know where that plant is coming from, just like foods, you want to know that it's an organic, it doesn't have any chemicals or pesticides, and you can add it to your food. For everyone uh, in the world, we all have our own um, endocannabinoid system. So it's important that you find a CBD that works for you. And you have to take it consistently over a certain amount of time to be able to tell. I always, I look at it like Pilates. Like when I'm not working out or when I'm not doing Pilates, I can tell when I haven't done it. Um, It's, and it's. It's like when you stop taking something and you all of a sudden you're like, I need to get back on my vitamins, so to speak. I think I think of cannabis as a vitamin. Okay. We're talking with Jolene Rivera. She's founder and director of Kitchen Toke, the first internationally distributed food magazine teaching people how to cook with cannabis for health and wellness. Um, now, where is the market for you for this? Where where where, where are people? Um, is this this is everywhere, right? So, did you do? You, are you seeing an uptick in places where it's more legal? Is that is that logical? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's nationwide for starters. Um, the magazine itself is in twenty five hundred stores in the United States and Canada, and then we're also overseas. But um, the the movement itself of just see if you if you wanted the cannabis movement, you know, we have what ten recreational legal states now. Um, but outside of that, for the rest of of the country, um, there are um, medicinally legal. Um, I think thirty one or more. I can't even keep track to be honest with you anymore. Um, and the bills, you know, the hemp bills that are moving are being approved. And here, in, uh, you know, we're looking at legalization by 2020 here in Chicago. But um, I think that, um, yes, with the CBD, it's a CBD craze right now. And I think that the biggest obstacle for people is finding the good product there. So I think um, when you figure out what product is really good, people ask me all the time, what is your favorite? And I'll be starting, you know, a page on our website to talk about what I find out, what I find to be my favorites, what I would take personally. Um, And I think when you find your CBD oil that you like, that's, I mean, the entire world right now is curious about what cannabis can actually do for them. 
Go ahead. So, so Jerome and I are, are we're just naive old parents. So, like, when people are getting ready to cook with this, let's say that they do have a, a license and they go to a licensed dispensary and they've got the permission, what forms are they finding it in to cook with? Mostly, mostly oils and tinctures, and tinctures meaning um, you can do olive oils. You can order some really great olive oils online, CBD um, from hemp, um, which, to be clear, CBD from hemp versus CBD from the marijuana plant. Um, CBD from hemp has less than 0.3% THC, so you will not get high. THC, the, the psychoactive compound. Correct. Oh, okay. um, and then um, CBD from the marijuana plant can only be purchased um, at a dispensary. Um, so... When we're right now, we're talking about CBD from hemp. You can order olive oils online and get them shipped directly to you. Um, you can or, order tinctures. Um, there are a lot of good products: honeys, um, olive oils, um, flour. F- f- uh, Did you say flowers? No. Um, you can. You can't. Uh, not to my knowledge, actually, oh. you cannot buy actual. Um, I guess flour to smoke with. You oh. know, hemp flour to smoke with. At, unless you're at a dispensary. Oh, I thought you had mentioned flour. I was like, oh, so you can just make bread or something. <laughs> <laughs> flour meaning the marijuana flour. Oh, I yeah. was thinking F-L-O-U-R. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I think people who haven't seen uh, Kitchen Toke would be surprised by the wide variety of foods that are in it that you are cooking with. It is everything from salads to main courses to desserts uh, to Drinks to tortilla uh, española to use your um, Easter ham. I, use <laughs> yeah. up your old Easter ham it, and make a tortilla española that's can, with canna oil. Yes. Where did you find? And you've got little chef profiles in the back. People who are uh, doing this. Where did you find the people who are cooking up a storm here? Well, I work with uh, you know I my have an awesome editorial team. Uh, Mike Sula um, heads up our. Um, he's the director of content at Kitchen Talk. He, um, as you probably you guys, Chicago knows him well as an a, award-winning as a, award award-winning writer at The Reader. That's correct. Yeah. And um, we have a, a lot of great relationships with chefs over the last, you know, um, 10, 20 years between Mike, myself, Lori Yee, who also ha- um, helps out with our content. But we um, we count on chefs who, who know food and chefs who are also cooking with cannabis. So we've worked with a lot of um, Michelin-starred chefs, a lot of James Beard-nominated or winning chefs. And there is not a day that goes by, I don't think, or at least a week that I don't get a message from a chef who wants to cook with with Kitchen Toke. So it's, it's I mean, and these chefs are, um, they have some really good um, credentials behind them. Do you think that the future of this is um, is for you? You're, you're kind of a, a smaller player in the world of cooking uh, things. Does, does uh, you know, does some gigantic monolith come in and start doing their own um, kitchen toke kind of thing, and well, Condé Nast be starting in. like a big gourmet toke. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Um, I've said that from the beginning. You know, um, we were first. We were very first people to do it. We're still the first and only um, to do it. Um, it doesn't mean that they won't, you know, throw their hat in the ring. Um, but I think just like any other industry, there are multiple publications or multiple outlets talking about things. You have, you just said it yourself. You have Food and Wine. You have Bon Appetit. You have Savour. Um, I would imagine that there will be some other players. Um, I don't think they'll be doing it as well as we do. It, well, it's a great-looking magazine, and it made me hungry. That's <laughs> and, good news. And, and so Did Jill, you get the munchies, Jerome? <laughs> I got the munchies. <laughs> 
Jolene Rivera is the founder and director of Kitchen Toke, the first internationally distributed food magazine teaching people how to cook with cannabis for health and wellness. It's online as well at uh, kitchentoke.com. Yep, you can order the magazine. We produce the magazine every quarter. Um, we have our spring issue out now, and our next issue comes out on June 25th. Thanks very much for joining us. Jolene Rivera, Kitchen Toke. Thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about U.S.-Germany relations with Germany's ambassador to the United States. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Emily Haber is Germany's ambassador to the United States, and she has been since 2018. Before her posting here in the U.S., she was in Germany overseeing security and migration at the height of the refugee crisis in Chicago. And Ambassador Haber is here in Chicago for Germany Week, a 10-day celebration of German-American friendship. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Jerome. I love to be here. I was one, I wanted to ask you, you've had this uh, unique experience as um, someone who was right there at the height of the refugee crisis in Germany, which welcomed so many refugees at the time. Uh, do, did that look like a mistake in retrospect because uh, the political backlash was hard in Germany, it was hard all over Europe? Did everyone just misjudge where the public was at on immigration? You make it sound as if a decision had been taken that we wanted to take in uh, 1.2 million, which was the number that of people that came to Germany both in 2015 and 2016. But you see, um, the borders in Europe are open. People came. Usually there are three reasons why refugees come. The first one is um, they have good reasons to leave their countries. The second one is it's actually possible. And the third one is... They have reasons to expect that their life conditions will be better someplace else. And if you want to tackle migration, you have to tackle all three reasons. Now, people came in 2015 and 2016. Numbers are way down now because it was possible, because they had good reasons, and because they wanted to be someplace else. As the borders in Europe uh, have been open for a long time in the Schengen area, it was possible because the external border control had uh, uh, faltered. That was the case in Greece and that was the case in Italy. So you get it wrong if you say Germany had decided to take them in. They came and we had to tackle and handle the situation both in terms of laws and in terms of administration and in terms of uh, integration. And I think uh, we did just that. We've got the European parliamentary elections coming up and – uh, the reaction to the migrants and refugees who came to Europe is still a big topic. And uh, I've read interesting polls that say that it's not as uh, an acute problem as it was in the past. It doesn't seem to be have as much traction with voters these days. But, um, you know, we were just talking about the far right party in Spain coming on and uh, there's a talk of a coalition in the European Parliament between all the far-right parties. Do you think we are at peak reaction to that yet? Is that is the immigration issue still feeding the far-right? I think it is. 
there were two issues that were feeding the far right and the Eurosceptic uh, uh, movements in Europe. The first one was the Euro crisis, and the second one. Uh, was migration uh, in 2015 and 2016. And as migration very often, not always, is about identity, it's about cu cultural identities and so forth, it's something that is really uh, uh, affecting people or people feel affected uh, by it. Um, it continues to be a large issue, even though numbers are much, uh, much lower. But as people came from a huge area of origin, uh, They came from Afghanistan, they came from Syria, they came from Iran, they came from Morocco, they came from Tunisia, they came from countries uh, that were, where citizens would be entitled to uh, receive asylum in Europe and from countries where they were not because there was no reason uh, 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 for protection. Um, but as the, um, the challenge, you can easily see, was huge uh, because it was so uh, diverse and that continues to be uh, the issue. Now, you can say you can solve it if you integrate people into the labor market. And of course, that's important. You can solve it if people acquire language skills. That will also be important. But there remains the cultural challenge of integrating people who have a completely different societal DNA and completely different experiences uh, Uh, how to handle or how to respect different religions or how to respect women or how to handle uh, uh, administrations in rule of law conditions. So that's what we're handling and that will be a generational task. Do you think that the upcoming EU elections are in for parliament are um, – is the EU fighting to keep the EU the way it is? I mean all, every, par, every one of these far-right parties in Europe seems to – want to take power by knocking out the EU, by knocking it down. Um, does the EU have what it takes to fight back? You make it sound as if there were only far-right parties. Now, I'm not able to predict how the election outcome will be because that's the charm of democracies that you can't. And I read someplace uh, that uh, about 70 pe uh, 70% of the deputies would actually be in parliament already now. So the There will be change, uh, but it will not be a complete uh, overhaul. There will be right-wing parties. Uh, you see, in the last two years, we haven't only discussed about migration. Actually, we have discussed much more about Brexit. And we were very much inward-looking in that sense. And now, uh, as elections take place, they take place um, even though the Brexit uh, hasn't been uh, – well, we haven't seen Brexit as yet. That means uh, certain conditions of um, uncertainty. Uh, it will impact on the elections, but I see a chance in it in so far as we will then be able to turn to, to the issues that we really should be confronting because they are the challenges of the future. Which issues are those? What would you like to be confronting? Oh, I would like to see uh, confronted the geopolitical climate change uh, we are seeing. Uh, we are seeing uh, a huge change in the environment, in the political landscape of the world, uh, where the, um, uh, the, <laughs> the uh, power of the West uh, Or the balance is not tilting towards the West. It's tilting towards other uh, uh, um, uh, challenges. We see China, uh, its meteoric rise. We see Russia's reemergence uh, as a military power. We've seen Crimea uh, or what happened in Crimea and the uh, eastern Ukraine in our neighborhood. These are the huge uh, challenges. Uh, I would include other issues as well. Climate change, uh, for example. 
I'm talking with Emily Haber. She's Germany's ambassador to the United States. Um, one of the challenges uh, for your job, I imagine, these days has to do with uh, Iran and the nuclear deal. The U.S. has pulled out of the nuclear deal and wants to waive uh, the waivers that it has for five countries um, on May 2nd, they all don't get to uh, import oil from Iran anymore, and there's going to be penalties if they do. Um, is uh, Can Germany and the EU do – and are they doing enough to support the Iran nuclear deal? Well, for us, the um, UN resolution uh, that had endorsed the Iran deal is still in force, so we don't see any change in that. Listen, um, usually people say we uh, don't look eye to eye on the Iran deal. And it's true there are differences. But you have to make a difference between whether we agree on the strategic objectives, the ends, if you like, and the means. And on the ends, we, we are in agreement. We agree that Iran's uh, malign behavior in the region is not acceptable. We agree uh, uh, that we have to tackle uh, the sunset uh, clause. Uh, we agree uh, that the missile program uh, is a huge problem. And we agree that all of this needs to be handled. What we don't agree is how uh, uh, how to arrive at that objective. Uh, uh, doing it by um, using the JCPOA, or by doing it uh, um, by ditching the uh, uh, JCPOA and exerting maximum pr uh, pressure. That's where we have agreements. But, you know, we have administrations in, uh, in both countries uh, that have uh, decade-long experiences uh, with arguing out uh, differences. Well, if the Iranians are seeing no benefits from the deal and their economy is in, in rough shape um, – is there more that Europe could do to help? Is that an appropriate response? Um, we have always made the point, not only Germany, uh, uh, but uh, France and uh, and the UK as the E3, uh, along with the other European member uh, states of the European Union, uh, that we need some space in order to keep uh, Iran in the agreement. Not because that would be the strategic goal. The strategic goal is to prevent Iran from returning to its nuclear Program, because that we feel uh, would uh, gravely uh, uh, exacerbate uh, the uh, um, political and security situation in the region. So that's the strategic goal. If that is something uh, that others uh, um, uh, can accept, well, then we need the space, and that means uh, uh, make it worthwhile and interesting for Iran to remain in the agreement even though the United States have left and even though uh, they're at the receiving end uh, of very massive uh, sanctions. I wanted to ask a couple questions about NATO and everyone talks about uh, what is happening with NATO these days and I had three ambassadors from uh, U.S. ambassadors to NATO on the program the other day and um, they were all discussing the, the kind of crisis of mission in NATO, the, the divisiveness of NATO these days. Um, the United States wants to see all the countries uh, in Europe uh, up to 2% in their defense budgets. And Germany has stayed pretty static there and well below 2%. Uh, what is um, 
you've got plans in the future, but the budget doesn't seem to be moving much. What's going on with uh, Germany's defense budget? Well, it's not the United States only that uh, um, requests the 2%. It's the um, consensus uh, of NATO member states that in Wales in 2014 have pledged uh, uh, to arrive uh, um, at the 2% goal by, or at least uh, uh, in terms of direction, uh, uh, by 2024. Now, it's true what you say, uh, that we haven't met the challenge. But the truth also is, uh, and I would ask you to, to factor that in, is that our defense budget uh, has um, grown by um, 40% uh, since 2014. It will have grown uh, by 80% uh, if we reach um, uh, the one uh, the 1.5% which we have promised, uh, 80%, 80% is not nothing. Um, and I believe that Americans have made their own experience that if you um, if you take a turn and if you change the strategy, which we've done after 2014, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes some time. I believe uh, if we would... Uh, if we were to reach the 2% goal in this year, we'd have to uh, increase our defense budget and add an additional 80 billion euros or so. So, you see, some things are simply not doable overnight. But there's no question uh, that we remain committed to the 2% goal and that we're doing a lot in order to move uh, to move there. Do you think there is a new lack of trust within NATO? Are the, are the countries, have they been divided? Well, uh, I'm I'm being asked that uh, at times. It's true, but we've just had a uh, beginning of April uh, um, a NATO meeting in Washington, where all um, foreign ministers of NATO member states uh, uh, assembled here uh, and recommitted themselves uh, to uh, to NATO. I believe that uh, NATO has been the uh, most successful alliance in history, and that's certainly something which we shouldn't be squandering, I mean, in terms of a heritage. Uh, I believe there's a sense of purpose, there's a sense of direction. Uh, we are arguing out some differences, uh, differences on how to get there, but the sense of urgency uh, has profoundly altered uh, ever since uh, 2014. I think we're in a good place. It's interesting that the countries that do meet the 2% uh, uh, quota for the defense budget are the countries that are really worried about Russia. Um, the Baltic countries, Poland, they, they, they meet 2%. Should NATO go back to a more um, back-to-the-roots mission? Is that wise for NATO? Uh, the world has changed. Um, our environment and our ge geography have changed. Uh, Russia has changed. Uh, so I don't find it surprising uh, that the focus uh, of especially, uh, but not only, uh, well, the focus of a number of European uh, um, member states of NATO is very much uh, is very much Russia. After all, uh, what happened uh, in Crimea or eastern Ukraine, or if you like, uh, in two thousand eight uh, in Abkhazia and Ossetia, well, these were countries uh, uh, that were uh, focused on Europe. They were focused, frankly, on on Brussels and European. Uh, uh, um, aspirations or NATO aspirations even. So it affects us. It happened in our geography. I think that's pretty much important for any mission statement uh, within NATO. 
Uh, this week in Chicago, it's Germany Week, and it's a 10-day celebration of German-American friendship. And I, I notice, I mean, our governments seem at odds over a bunch of policies. Uh, what are you trying to do with this uh, German-American friendship, and, and what, 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 what's your strategy here? Well, the observation is in place uh, that any relationship um, doesn't consist only of uh, policy uh, consensus or policy uh, differences. Look, our bilateral relation, if you look at our bilateral relationship, we have over 200 sister, sister cities. They are uh, about 50 million Americans with German heritage. I believe it's 20 million uh, in, uh, in Illinois. So these are or the Midwest anyway. So these are huge numbers. Look at the numbers of people who did uh, a tour of service uh, in Germany, GIs, uh, over 200,000, 230,000 uh, uh, um, uh, back in uh, uh, 20 years ago, there are 35,000 now. Uh, all in all, it's a number of 17 million. These are all people uh, uh, who, have, who had experience uh, in Germany. Look at the tourists, look at the university exchanges, look at the school exchanges. That's a very intense fabric uh, um, uh, of uh, a bilateral relationship, and it will not uh, evaporate or go away simply because we have uh, individual uh, individual policy differences. So what do we want to do with our initiative that we just uh, started uh, um, um, in October last year? Well, we want to we focus our interest we want to make we want to make ourselves aware of how much there is actually uh, um, uh, binding us together linking us uh, and in illinois alone we have about we have 42 projects uh, 40 uh, of them uh, in chicago chicago will be one of the focal points uh, we've had uh, uh, over 100 uh, uh, events already or will have them uh, over 40 uh, uh, projects uh, as I said uh, um, right now we have the Germany week that started on uh, April 26th and will take until May uh, 5th uh, there will be the uh, uh, um, pop-up tour, that's the uh, initiative of the uh, uh, businesses. Uh, there will be um, uh, a number of activities re relating to education, to uh, science, to technology, and to architecture. There's a great website, uh, germanyweek.org, uh, I believe, and it's uh, got all the information, day-by-day -day events until May 5th. And the biggest uh, structure I've ever seen in Daly Plaza, the beer hall in Daly Plaza, looks fantastic. Um, Please come. Come. <laughs> <laughs> In spite of the weather, there's, a, there's shelter, believe me. I've seen it. Emily Haber is the Germany's ambassador to the United States and uh, here for Germany Week. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about some of the issues. Thank you for inviting me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with a history historian of Japan, and we'll talk about emperors in Japan. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.